Well, let me just say, good morning, Lakeview Church. A few of you are there. You guys did a great job for Jared, so what's the deal here? Good morning, Lakeview Church. Beautiful, beautiful. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Williams, and I get the wonderful privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Lakeview Church, and I just want to say welcome. I know a lot of you, maybe this is the first time you've ever been here, or maybe you haven't been here in a while and you've come back today. I just want to say welcome. We're so very glad that you are here. And I want to just make sure everyone knows, those of you who are here every Sunday and those of you who are maybe here for the very first time, we're an everyday church for everyday people. And our primary mission and goal as a church is to follow Jesus, learn to live generously so that we can make a difference in this world for him. And I just want you to know, if you're new here, first time, maybe you're, you've been here maybe just a few times, I just want you to know, there's not a single person in this church who has arrived we're all on a journey. We're all traveling together. We're here to support one another and help one another so that we can grow and become the people that God wants us to be. So whether you feel like you're a veteran of the faith or you're, you're just getting started or maybe you've been in it for a little while and you're trying to find your footing again or maybe you're just considering, is Jesus even someone I wanna follow? I just wanna let you know we're all on a journey and we would love for you to journey with us. So we're just inviting you to jump in and be a part and, and take the journey with us. And we're gonna take next steps together. We're gonna support one another and we're gonna grow and become the people that God wants us to be. And this morning we are here on Easter Sunday to celebrate what is the foundation of our faith. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived, he died, and he was raised again. And through his life and his death and his resurrection, we know that death has been defeated, that hell has been defeated, that the grave has been defeated, that, that in our lives we can experience forgiveness and we can find freedom to become the people that God wants us to be because of what Jesus has done. And we are here this morning to celebrate that. The songs that we chose, the fact that Jay represented what this is all about in baptism and the way that we have sensed God's presence here is all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He died and he was raised again. And I know we've been singing and you guys did such a great job and I'm not gonna ask you to sing and I'm certainly not gonna lead you in singing and you can say amen to that, okay? But I would like us just to take 20 seconds if we can and just give God the biggest hand clap that you can to just praise him for the work that Jesus has done for us through his death and his resurrection. Can we do that? Let's just celebrate. God has been so good to us, so good to us. And uh, as I've been walking up to Easter over these last several weeks, I've just really been in my own heart and in my own mind just rereading the stories of Jesus in the Bible. And I've really just, maybe more than any other year of my life as a follower of Jesus, I've just been really just digging into the words again and just saying, who is Jesus? Looking at his character, his nature, looking at the, what he does, his mission, and the work that he actually accomplishes. And, and as I've been doing that over these last several weeks, the, the message series that I've written that we started last week and we're continuing today and we'll finish next week, really just comes out of those personal reflections. It's a series that we're just simply calling Jesus Is. And last week we talked about the fact that Jesus is humble. 
And we talked about the fact that Jesus humbled himself and took on human form. And he did that because he wanted to identify with us and he did that because he wanted to search for us as his people. This morning, I wanna talk to you about the truth that Jesus is savior. And next week, we're gonna finish this series by talking about the fact that Jesus is Lord. And so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and you can watch that message online and and see how we started this series. And and I wanna invite every single one of you to come back next week as we conclude this story by really talking about what are the implications of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we're gonna kind of explore that next week in the final message of this series. But today, I wanna talk to you about the saving work of Jesus Christ. And and I really want to break it down in kind of three parts this morning. There are really three parts to the saving work of Jesus. And the first part of the saving work of Jesus is the fact that Jesus lived. Jesus lived. And we talked about this last week. We started by talking about the fact that Jesus is God. We, We went to John chapter one, verse one, where we said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we identified the fact that John was using this term, the word, it's the Greek word logos, and it literally was a word that John used to describe Jesus. And he was letting us know that Jesus is God. He's not just another human being, and he's not even a special human being. He is God. He is divine. And then we talked about the fact that this this person who is God became human. And we looked at John chapter one, verse 14, which says the word took on human form. And you can see it on the screen right here, right out of the scriptures. And he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. It's important for us to know that Jesus did not consider his equality with God something that he would hold on to or cling to, but he willingly laid it down and he took on human form. It's amazing to me to think about a God who would create the world and all of us as human beings, and then he would subject himself to becoming one of his created. He took on human flesh. And he became one of us. He did that to identify with us. And while he was here, he called disciples and he taught the crowds and he took a little boy's lunch and he blessed it and he fed thousands of people with it. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened blinded eyes and unstopped deaf ears. There were people who were oppressed by demons and he cast those demons out of their lives and he set them free and made them whole again. And all along the way, Jesus showed love and compassion at every turn. He was always caring for people, always loving people, always serving people. And and his life, his, his teaching, the way he interacted with people, the way he loved people, all of that was part of his saving work. He 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 lived as one of us and he showed us who the Father is by the way that he lived. But he didn't just come as a baby in a manger to live his life on this earth. He he actually came with a greater mission. He lived so that he could die. And this is the second part of Jesus' saving work. Jesus lived and Jesus died. His death is 
talked about in Philippians chapter two. That's the passage we looked at last week, right? He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing. He took on human form. And then what we read in Philippians chapter two, verse seven, is that in human form, he became obedient to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus lived, he, he's God, he becomes human, he lives and then he dies a criminal's death on the cross. His death began when he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. If you've ever been betrayed by a friend, if you've ever had a friend who said they were loyal to you and then as it turns out, they weren't loyal to you. Jesus knows what that's like because that happened to Jesus too. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends, and Judas went to some of the religious leaders who were looking for a way to get Jesus, and, and Judas actually, for a price of money, actually turned Jesus over to the religious leaders. They came to the garden where Jesus was praying with some of his disciples, and they arrested Jesus, and they carried him away. They didn't delay in what they wanted to do next because they were on a mission. They actually wanted to kill Jesus and so they took Jesus immediately into a trial and it was nighttime. Jewish law does not allow for trials to be conducted at night but the Jewish leaders, they didn't care about that. They had something else they wanted to accomplish and so Jesus over that night is tried three times. Three different locations, three different trials and, and all of that is so that they could kill Jesus. It finally concludes with Jesus standing in front of Pilate, a Roman leader, and as he stands in front of Pilate, Pilate is, is trying to find a way to set Jesus free. And so he remembers a custom, a custom of releasing one criminal every year and letting them go free, just taking away their sentence. And he knows that Jesus is going to be sentenced to death, but he, he's also got a really bad criminal named Barabbas. And so he decides, I know what I'll do. I'll put these two up in front of the crowd. They'll certainly let Jesus go free because he's a better man than Barabbas. But the crowd is bloodthirsty. And so they let Barabbas go. And Jesus is sentenced by Pilate to be beaten, to be flogged, and then to be crucified. Now you need to know something about the Roman government of that day. They were professional executioners. They had perfected this, this reality of executing people. And Jesus is subjected now to this Roman form of execution. And I don't wanna be too graphic today, but I do wanna help you understand what Jesus suffered for you and for me because it wasn't just him dying. He suffered for us. When Pilate hands him over to be beaten, they take him out and they flog him. Now, Roman law said that when a person was to be flogged, they were to be beaten 40 times, save one. So that's 39 times to be beaten with a whip. Now, this wasn't just any whip. It was called a cat of nine tails. It was a long wooden handle that would be wrapped in leather. Think of a shovel handle wrapped in leather with nine strips of leather coming off of the end. And think about each of those strips of leather having along the way pieces of bone, pieces of metal, pieces of glass, rocks tied into the leather. This was intended not just to beat the person, but to catch into their skin so that when that whip would be ripped down, it would literally tear their flesh. 
And they were very intentional about this. This was a strategy. They would whip them 13 times over this shoulder to tear all of the muscles that would hold a body up on the cross. And they would whip them 13 times on the other shoulder to make sure that they had no strength in their arms to hold themselves up. And then with the remaining 13 lashes, they would go right down the spine to expose the spine to the wooden splintered cross. And Jesus suffered that kind of beating that day. Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, foresaw the crucifixion of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened. And he actually says of Jesus, by his stripes, we are healed. Isaiah was seeing the fact that Jesus' back would literally have been ripped by that whip. But by his stripes, we are healed and we are made whole. Jesus is beaten, and then he's asked to carry his own cross, which he's too weak to do. So they call someone out of the crowd to carry the cross for him. They arrive at Golgotha, which is known as the place of the skull. It is a place of death. It's the place where crucifixions happened. And they laid the cross down, and they laid Jesus out on that cross, and they actually would nail their hands to the cross. And we don't know if they put nails through their hands or if they put the nail through their wrist. We just don't know. If they put the nail through their hands, they would have never been held to the cross, so they would have had to tie their arms to the cross to keep them there. That's why some people believe the nail went right through the two bones in the wrist to make sure that they were held to the cross. Now, you might think that a person hanging on a cross would die from the loss of blood, but in reality, they never died from the loss of blood. They actually suffocated because they couldn't breathe. They were positioned in such a way that the only way to breathe was to push up on your, on your legs because remember, your shoulder muscles are gone. So you would have to push up on your legs that were nailed to the cross. And in fact, they, they would turn the person's feet to the side and they would take that spike and drive it right in front of the Achilles tendon. Now, if you know anything about the Achilles tendon, if, if you've ever ripped that or torn that or pulled that, it's painful. And imagine hanging on a cross and knowing the only way to get another breath in your lungs is to push up with your legs to get that breath. Jesus hangs on that cross in that position for hours. And during that time, he pushes up on the cross and he says things like this to the thief next to him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He pushes up another time and he looks at his mother and he, he reminds her that she's gonna be cared for by one of his disciples. He pushes up on the cross one more time and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He pushes up another time and says, into your hands, commit my spirit. He pushes up one more time. And he says, it is finished. And with that, he breathed his last. Jesus is God and he became human and he lived, but then he died. He died a criminal's death on a cross. And if we just stop the story there, it's no reason to come to church because lots of people have lived and lots of people have died. 
But the story doesn't end there. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and they took him down off of that cross and they put him in a borrowed tomb and they rolled a stone in front of that tomb and they sealed it. And Jesus was in that tomb for Friday. That was day one. He was in that tomb on Saturday. That was day two. And then on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And when they got there, the stone was rolled away and they start looking for Jesus. They think maybe someone has taken the body of Jesus. And so they're looking all around, trying to find where Jesus is. And then we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 28, verse five. This is what it says. Then the angel spoke to the woman, don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come see where his body was lying. You see, Jesus lived, and then Jesus died, but three days later, Jesus was raised. And it is in this moment that the saving work of Jesus is finally complete. It's great that Jesus taught the crowd and called disciples and loved people and administered compassion to those around him. And it is wonderful and beautiful that Jesus was willing to be beaten and to suffer and to die for our sins, to make us right with God again. But what makes the story the saving work of Jesus is the fact that on the third day, the power of Almighty God rolled that stone away and went into that tomb and breathed life into the lungs of Jesus and the Son of God who died on the cross as a human being, was raised again to new life. Just like the hymn says, the hymn of the church, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to raise. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Death has been defeated, hell has been defeated, the grave has been defeated because Jesus lived and then he died and then he was raised again. And like I've been doing all of these weeks leading up to Easter, I've been going beyond what happened to ask deeper questions. Like Jesus lived, he died, he was raised again, so what? I mean, what difference does that make in my life and yours? It's one thing to know that Jesus lived, he died, and he was raised again. Happy Easter. I mean, it's great to know that, but, but how does that interact with our lives? What, is it, what does it look like when, when the saving work of Jesus becomes the saving work in our lives? And so I want to take just the next few moments, and I wanna direct your attention to another story in the scriptures that's kind of interwoven in the story of Jesus. And I don't know how much you know, shows you watch or movies you watch, but, but we like movies in our family. We, we are a movie-going family. We love popcorn, and we love movies. Can I get an amen from somebody in the room? At least for the popcorn. I mean, if you don't like the movies, at least the popcorn, right? 
And if you watch enough movies and if you watch enough shows, you've definitely seen what happens in a show where there's a main story that's playing out and, and you'll, you'll see the main characters and the main dialogue and the main interaction and that plot's unfolding. And then you'll see every once in a while, the camera will cut away to another set of characters in another place, in another location, because there's a secondary story that's playing out at the same time. And really good writers and really good cinematographers, they, they take those two stories and they interweave them together and they connect them at the right moment. And it really is a satisfying experience when you see that. Well, that's not just something that modern filmmakers do. We see it in scripture as the main story, and make no mistake about it, what I've just described to you about the saving work of Jesus, that is the main story. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised again. But while all of that is happening, there is another story of a man who was following Jesus and he failed in his journey of following Jesus. He utterly and horribly failed. And it's important for us to see that while Jesus is literally saving the world, there's a human being who's trying to follow Jesus and not doing it very well, and in fact even comes to a point of his lowest failure in life. And I wanna just for a moment take the camera away from the story of Jesus and show you what Jesus' saving work looks like in this man's life. The man's name is Peter. Peter's one of the most famous disciples in part because he was loud and obnoxious. He says things before he thinks. And in some cases, that works out really well. Like when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's right, Peter. And you could have never figured that out on your own. You're not that smart. <laughs> and then right after he says that, Jesus starts talking about his death on the cross. And Peter says, oh, that's never going to happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus, who's just praised Peter for receiving a revelation from God the Father, says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's always talking before he's thinking. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Peter, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, as they're having this final meal together, where Jesus breaks bread and, and shows them this cup, which represents his blood, and they finish the meal, they sing a hymn, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is gonna pray his final prayers to his father before the betrayal and the trial and the crucifixion. And on the way, Jesus says to Peter, hey, Peter, you just need to know that, that all of the disciples are gonna leave me because when you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And, and Peter, all of the disciples are gonna go. And Peter says, well, I won't go. I mean, all of the others will probably leave you because they're kind of wimps, but I'm not a wimp. I will follow you, Jesus, all the way to the end. And Jesus warns Peter in this moment. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you need to understand something. I'm telling you right now, before this night is over, you will deny me three times. In fact, you'll do that before the rooster crows twice. And Peter says, no, I won't do that, Jesus. You're wrong. They go to this place of prayer and then eventually Jesus is betrayed, he's arrested, he's carried off. And, and now Peter is following with another disciple to this place where Jesus is being tried. And we pick the story up in John 18. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another one of the disciples. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I'm not. That's denial number one. Because it was cold, the house servants and the guards made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Now, you see the first denial, that's obvious, but I, I highlighted the word charcoal fire because I just want you to see this word. It's the Greek word anthrakia, and, and, and the important thing about this word is that there are lots of Greek words that, that the author could have used here to talk about fire, more generic words, but he chose a very specific word to describe a very specific kind of fire. And this particular word is only used two times in the entire Bible. And this is the first time. And I'm just gonna leave it hanging right there for a couple minutes, okay? We pick up in verse 25. You can almost feel the camera shift away from Jesus because it goes back to the trial for a minute. And then it says, meanwhile... As Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it saying, no, I am not. That's denial number two. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Jesus, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. That's number three. And immediately a rooster crowed. Now, another passage that describes the same story says when that rooster crowed the second time, Peter remembered the words of Jesus and then he went out and he wept because he recognized in that moment that all of the desires he had in his heart to truly follow Jesus and become everything Jesus wanted him to be, he had neglected all of that. He turned his back on that and he had denied the one who was in that very moment literally giving his life for the sins of the world and for Peter's sins. And it broke Peter, so much so that he went out and he wept. Now, Peter's failure is obvious and it's painful. It's easy to look at Peter and say, I would have never done that. I would have been smarter than that. I would have been braver than that. I would have been better than that. Don't you know who you're following, Peter? But here's the reality. Peter's experience is all of our experience because we're human. We know what it means to fail, to have faults, to have shortcomings because we are human beings, every single one of us. And if you don't think you're human, see me right after church. We will help you with that, okay? Human beings have faults and failures. God has a plan. He has a purpose for our lives. He has dreams and desires of what he wants us to be. But here's the thing. It's true about Peter. It's true about me. And it's true about you. We all sin and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. There's not a single person who has ever lived, who has achieved everything God has for us to achieve without God's help. It doesn't work that way. 
So when we look at Peter's life and we watch him fail in this obvious and painful way, it ought to just remind us, I know what that's like. Because there have been times where I've denied Jesus. There have been times where I should have done better living for Jesus than I did. And I just, I failed him. I didn't live up to the standard that he had for my life. He wanted me to go this way and I went this way instead. He was telling me, I want you to do this. And I said, no, thank you. I'm going to do this. And if you're honest, you've done the same thing in your life. But here's the beautiful reality of the saving work of Jesus. The saving work of Jesus means that our failure is not the end of the story. There's always a sequel. And in the sequel, we get redeemed and the story gets rewritten and everything gets turned around and we get made into the people that God wants us to be, not by what we do, but by what Jesus has done, by living, by dying, by being raised again. Let me show you how this works in Peter's life. We pick it up in John 21. This is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's even appeared to his disciples a couple of times. But this is what it says, beginning in verse four of John 21. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Now, time out right there just to remind you of something that happened in Peter's life real early. When Peter was just getting to know who Jesus was, Peter was a fisherman. It's what he did for a living, and he had been out fishing all night long, and he hadn't caught a single thing. Now, he wasn't fishing with like a rod and reel. He wasn't casting out they man, I didn't catch anything. He's throwing a net out into the water and trying to haul fish in. And he's been doing this his whole adult life. He knows how to do this, but he hasn't caught any fish. And he's coming in from a night of fishing and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you just gotta throw the net on the other side of the boat. Which doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, really, if they're, if they're on that side of the boat, they can swim into the net on the other side of the boat. It's not that far away. And Peter knows this. Peter says, I mean, he doesn't say, Jesus, that's dumb, but he kind of alludes to that. Because he actually says, nevertheless, because you've asked me to do it, I will. He's basically saying, Jesus, I'm going to do this. It's not going to work, but I'm going to do it because you told me to do it. Peter does what Jesus tells him to do, and, and the net is so full that it almost starts sinking the boat. Isn't it interesting that the way Jesus introduces himself to his disciples in this story is by calling to mind a situation that Peter has experienced before. I think he's reminding Peter of the work that he's done in his life. He's causing Peter to go back and think about his story with Jesus. When, when the very first time that Peter recognized Jesus is Lord. We continue reading. Then the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, jumped into the water and headed to the shore. That sounds like Peter. Just jump right in. 
The others stayed with the boat and they pulled the loaded net to the shore for they were only about 100 yards away from the shore. And when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire. It's the only other time in the Bible where that word is used after it was used in the first story where Peter failed. I find it fascinating that Jesus decides to build a fire on the beach and he builds a fire that is exactly the same kind of fire where Peter denied him just a few days before. It's interesting to me that Jesus goes back to a story from the beginning of Peter's journey with Jesus to say, remember how it started, Peter? And then remember the fire? Now, from this point forward, Peter, we're gonna rewrite your story. Because you're not gonna be defined by the story of your failure. You're gonna be defined by the story of forgiveness and grace. And watch what Jesus does. He builds a charcoal fire. He cooks breakfast for his disciples. And he says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went, went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish. I love the specificity of this passage. 153 large fish. And yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. Now look at this conversation as it unfolds. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. That's the first question and the first affirmation. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. That's the second question and the second affirmation. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. Do you know why he was hurt? Because he remembered his failure. Jesus is literally setting the scene for Peter to remember his failure so he can have Peter confess that failure, which is what Peter does next. He says, you know everything. Peter and Jesus have not talked about his denial. Jesus said, Peter, you're gonna deny me, it's gonna happen. And Peter denied him. 
He did it, but, but Jesus died and he was buried and he was raised again and, and they've had some interactions, but they've never had a moment to have a conversation. And in this moment, Jesus asks three questions because he's rewriting Peter's story. He's saying, Peter, you denied me in that moment, but I'm gonna give you a chance, Peter, to do it differently from this point forward. I'm rewriting your story. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter has to affirm three times, to cancel out those denials. And I love it when Peter says, you know everything. You might be here today and you might, you might know what your failure is, but no one else around you knows. I just wanna let you know, he knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. He knows your failure and he wants to rewrite your story. He doesn't want you to be defined by your failure. He wants you to be defined by his grace and his forgiveness and his love. That's who Jesus is. It's true, we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's standard. Peter's experience is our experience. We all have faults. We all have failures. We all have shortcomings. We all have sin. God has said, go this way, and we have rebelled and gone another way. That's true of all of us. But God does not want to allow us to have our story end that way. He wants to rewrite our story. He wants to pour out grace and forgiveness and love and mercy. He wants to forgive us and change us and make us new. He wants to wash us clean. This is what the saving work of Jesus looks like in a person's life. Jesus lived, he died, he was raised again. But if you'll let him, he'll take that saving work and he'll apply it to your life and he will rewrite your story. And it'll have a better ending than anyone you could have ever written for yourself. So this morning, I wanna just ask everybody in this room just for a moment or two, just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I don't want anybody looking around because I really do want this to be a private, personal moment for each and every person in this room. Because some of you are here this morning and the reality is, is that you have faults and failures. And right now, if you were honest, you'd be, you would be defined by that fault or failure if you allowed it. I mean, it, it, it is the thing that, that is there in your life. But God wants to rewrite your story today. He just wants you to say, you know everything, Lord. But I'm here and I'm, I'm willing to let you rewrite my story. So, so here's the deal this morning. And again, this is just a private moment. We, we believe that these moments of commitment are between you and the Lord. And, and we believe baptism is when you go public with your faith. So, so we're not asking you to go public. I'm not gonna call you down front. I'm not gonna ask you to stand. I'm not gonna point you out. All I'm simply saying is if this morning you are here and you recognize that right now the story of your life is going to be more defined by faults and failures and shortcomings than by the grace and love and forgiveness of God and you wanna change that trajectory. You wanna rewrite the story of your life. You want God to pour out grace and mercy on you and begin to change you and make you who he wants you to be. All I want you to do this morning is just lift up your hand and I wanna pray for you and I won't embarrass you, I promise you. There are hands going up all over this room all over this room. Don't, 
Don't keep your hands down. Put them up if you want God to rewrite your story this morning. Yeah. For those of you that have raised your hands, I'm gonna ask you to just put them down now and I'm gonna just say a prayer and I want you to say this prayer with me. And you can say it out loud if you want to, but you can just say it silently right there where you sit. I just want you to say it from your heart because this is a prayer from you to God. Let's pray this prayer. God, thank you that you wanna rewrite my story. Thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, thank you that you lived, you died, and you were raised again. And thank you, God, that you don't want me to be defined by my faults and my failures. You want me to be defined by grace and forgiveness and your love. So God, I'm putting my trust in you today. Putting my faith in you today. And I'm asking you to do a work in my life. I'm asking you to change me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to make me brand new. And I'm claiming a new ending to the story of my life. Not because of who I am or what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. And I'm praying all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there are people all across this room who are just praying that prayer, and I think it would just be appropriate for us as a church to congratulate them, to welcome them to the family and that decision that they've just made. God's doing great things among us, and we started the service by singing a song, He Has Done Great Things, and we just thought it might be a fitting way to end this service to sing that song again. And so I want to invite all of you to stand and I want you just to celebrate the saving work of Jesus and the great things that he has done in our lives. So let's celebrate together this morning.